like David said, like even in like some of the introduction certs that I that I took 10 years ago, you look at the books and they're showing like frontal plane movement and they've got somebody doing a really terrible like side lunge where their knee is, you know, a foot outside of the rib cage. Right. They're just completely externally rotated and abducted there. And that's just moving sagittal sideways. That's just moving in a lateral direction, but that's not frontal plane. Like David's saying, like you have to be able to manipulate your center of mass over a foot to be able to actually get into the frontal plane, whether we're talking pelvis or rib cage or just the entire axial skeleton there. A lot of strength in the conditioning coaches and therapists, they actually understand this, but they don't realize they understand it because they chase thoracic mobility. You see that all of the time. And there's all these million thoracic mobility drills in the gym. And they're so close, but they just don't realize that it, if you actually drove movement into the rib cage, that would mobilize the thoracic one million times faster than spending five years doing all these foam roller reaches and thoracic mobility drills. That was Kyle Dobbs and David Gray. And you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to mention a really cool item that is available now from our sponsor, simplyfaster.com in their store. That item is Exogen Premium Wearable Resistance. Exogen is a series of tight-fitting sleeves along with uniquely shaped fusiform weights that strap directly onto those sleeves. So what I mean is you can have shin sleeves, arm sleeves, shorts, and a vest, and you can strap these uniquely fusiform-shaped weights that they're light in nature, 100, 200 grams, that strap on in a way that allows you not only to resist movement very specifically, but also add fine-tuned elements of rotation to that resistance. So this is the next level of wearable resistance. You may have heard this from back long ago on the show, Hank Kreienhoff talking about it, to recently Chris Corfis, sprint coach, talking about it. This is the next level in premium wearable resistance. I've used it myself. I love it. I love not only the way it feels and the way you feel form and technique change. It's like combining technique with power. And so often we just think about weighted vests as just pure force, pure downward gravity loaded resistance. This is the ultimate combination of technique with power, and it shows up in things like Chris Corfis being able to take time off an athlete's 10-meter fly by putting the sleeves just on one side of the body in ipsilateral resistance. We're using the body's own systems, fine-tuning it, and that's what this does. It allows you as the coach or an athlete to create, explore, and fine-tune the way that the resistance is rotationally impacting the body. This is next-level stuff, and I know you'll love it. So you can check that out in the Simply Faster store. Head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com, and get your exogen gear today. Welcome to another show. Great to have you guys here. So, in my career as a strength coach, I've come an awful long way. Some of the bigger things that I've been really learning about recently have had to do uh, heavily with posture, position, the human body as kind of a, pr- a pressure system, and looking at how breathing and rib dynamics and all these all these concepts really play into not just things we see at the gym, but the bridge between the gym and sprinting and cutting and changing direction and jumping. And the greater understanding we have of the human body, the more all this stuff makes sense. And I think we can start to really, truly understand positive and negative transfers, reasons that people are in pain that we may have not seen before, and the ability to help clients on a deeper level. Two individuals who have made a substantial impact 
in this realm and many others are Kyle Dobbs and David Gray. These two have been on the podcast previously. Some of our all-time top listen shows have been with Kyle and David. I've learned a lot uh, from them, not only on this podcast, but also off, just having conversations, asking them questions. The concepts of the human body related to posture and rib position and breathing dynamics and, and compression can be really complex. Um, honestly, I'm a little bit more of a macro to micro style learner. And so Kyle and David have played a huge role in me understanding this material better. Our guest today as well, quickly with their backgrounds, I'm sure many of you are familiar with them, but David is a biomechanics specialist based out of Waterford, Ireland. He is the creator of the lower body basics and core basics programs and has learned under a great number of mentors in the world of movement, rehab, strength, and far beyond. Kyle is the owner and founder of Compound Performance, uh, where he offers online training, consulting, and mentorship. Kyle is a leader in coach education and one of the most brilliant trainers that I've had the privilege of chatting with. It's awesome to have these guys both on the same show today. So we're going to talk about a few topics, but really you can encapsulate this show by talking about the relationship of the ribs, breathing, and our positioning with our dynamic movement. We're going to talk heavily about crawling and ground-based work and how the body shifts through that and how it relates to gait and how the breath and the lungs and what you might see will relate to performance. We're going to get into some more extensive talk about like the frontal plane, lunges, split squats, and other ways that we can see running and cutting show up in the gym and just being able to assess athletes on that level. We're also going to get into the feet and how the feet are operating from a change of direction perspectives and a whole lot more. This was a great talk with two really intelligent minds in the industry, and it's always fun to bring more than one guest together on the show. So let's get on to it. Episode 245 with Kyle Dobbs and David Gray. All right, Kyle, David, awesome to have you guys on the show together. So this is exciting for me. I always like doing uh, shows with more than one guest and you know, having both of you on fairly recently. It's, it'll be fun. I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about today. Um, so we can get right into it. I know uh, we put out some questions or uh, leads on social media and a lot of people have had breathing and breath related questions uh, for me personally, maybe I'll just filter this through my brain is I just, I, I guess like when you have a client trying to communicate to them the importance of what you're doing when they're just sitting there like, okay, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Um, how do we make, um, the, the breath part, uh, how do we, I guess you could say sell it, but when you say sell it, that means more like it's not actually doing anything, but how do you. Uh, explain and then sequence the breath uh, and breathing work in the course of your session. Uh, thanks for having me on, Joel and uh, and Coyle. It's my first. It's my first three way. So um, not not what I expected to, it to be like, but um, I'm excited. And um, and uh, yeah, I think most of the time I just I just pander to Coyle because I'm not as smart as you two guys. So I'm happy to I'm happy to just nod along. But um, how do you sell it? Um, good question. I think it depends on the client and what their goals are. And that's how I sell anything to them. So the language I use relates to what they're looking for from what results, what end result they're looking for. So unfortunately, I think most people are are trying to build buy-in with their clients by saying, this is going to help with your back pain. And actually, the client does not give a shit about back pain, even if they're with you for back pain. They, they actually care about what the pain is maybe stopping them from doing. So the pain is stopping me from performing at my best or the pain is stopping me from, I, I'm with you because I'm in pain, but I'm actually really with you because I can't sprint the way I would like to sprint. So 
if someone has back pain, for instance, in my world, lower back pain or something like that, as they're as they're running, then the breath work to me, if if it's if it's necessary, if I think it's necessary for that client, I'll probably try and explain it to them in the way that right here's the rib cage, here's the whole kind of it makes up a big chunk of your of your spine basically. All this segment kind of moves together, and it should be able to move better. And if we can get the ribs to move really well then the lower back muscles usually get a chance to relax and a lot more of your rotation and your power will come from the middle and upper back rather than always pulling on the lower back. So that's an example of buying for someone like that or for a rotational athlete. I might even show them some videos and say a golfer or something, look how, look how their rib cage needs to be able to rotate here. And if we, if we don't breathe well, um, you, don't, you don't really have a chance of that happening because the breath is the thing that mobilizes all those God knows how many joints that are in the thorax. So for me, I always approach buying in a way that relates to their end goal or what they're what the result they they're looking for from. And then the other way, I always have a test and a retest. So I check things quite regularly with my client. So I will show them or I will ask them to do a test, a squat, a toe touch, a range of motion test on the table, um, a pain provocation test, whatever it might be. And then we'll try and we'll try a position or an exercise or a breath, uh, positional breathing drill that makes sense in my mind. And then we'll retest. And if I've got it right, it will be better. It, it, it should be better. If if it's not better within five or six breaths, as in not a hundred percent better, but better than it was, then then we're doing the wrong thing. I'm coaching it wrong, or it's the wrong position. And if they feel better almost instantly, then that should make sense as to why we're going to continue to do things like this as we progress on. Yeah. I'm, I'm very much the same in the same mindset with a lot of the stuff. And, and Joel, thank you again for having me on as well. And this, especially being able to, to talk with David here as well. Um, but I kind of consider breath is, is the same issue, right? Is if, you know, your body from an autonomic perspective is going to prioritize respiration over just about everything else. Right. So, if you have, if you're inefficient with inhalation or exhalation, you're, you're probably going to be also kind of hypersympathetic and your movement's going to be a little restricted based on that, especially if you have issues moving your rib cage and having mobility within that structure. Cause as David said, like you're talking about just a series of joints and connective tissue from a cartilage perspective, like it's built to move, right? Whether we're talking about the sternum, the ribs, the, the thoracic spine, all of those things. And if you're not able to do that, that will affect your ability to move distally as well, right? When we look at the appendicular skeleton and the the scaps and the humerus and everything else. So when we look at kind of those compression type strategies and, and how you're managing your center of mass or your ribcage in space, if you're in a ton of like thoracic extension, you're going to look at hypertonicity within like the lower back muscles and even the upper back muscles oftentimes simply because the rib cage is, is typically going to be forward in space over the front of your pelvis at that point. So you're going to have a ton of compression on the back end uh, and a ton of expansion on the front end. And if you're not able to get into more of a neutral position, you're, you're limiting both your ability to not only flex your spine, but also extend your spine further and leverage that extension for more power. You know, so most of the athletes that we work with are power-based athletes, right? Like we work with power lifters and we work with runners and kind of multi-directional athletes. And a lot of them need to leverage some kind of extension for power production. And 
if you're already in an extended position and you're already posteriorly compressed in that in, in that position, you don't have any more extension to actually be able to leverage. So we talk with them a lot about getting more of a neutral posture, getting more of a flexion, uh, even more a little bit on the flexion side of the continuum sometimes. So they actually have a larger bandwidth to drive extension when needed or when it's appropriate within their sport or their activity. And, you know, from, from a positional standpoint, like this, this might be respiration or thorax, but even looking at it from a muscular standpoint, this is also creating a stretch reflex, right? Driving more flexion so that you can get lengthened position positions of certain musculature. So you can drive more extension and power output and a shortened position of some of them, that musculature. So I am very much with David here where, you know, I'm, I try not to talk about pain with a lot of my people that's gets really murky and it's, it's really multivariable in a lot of cases we tend to look at how we can use some of these same strategies to drive better performance. Cause that's what most of our people are coming to us for. And that performance might be walking up the steps, you know, more efficiently. It might be sprinting a faster 40, like it depends on what it is. Um, and we kind of go from there and then we just try to manage again, the fatigue and, and kind of training volume over the course of the actual training that we're giving people. Cause those might actually have be having a bigger impact on their, you know, kind of quote unquote pain or discomfort anyway. Um, so we mask it in uh, a lot of the times. Yeah. I, I ask cause in, in my own evolution of going through a lot of the breathing drills, like I've gone to the seminars where I'll come back and like, everyone's going to do 90, 90 wall breathing, mm-hmm. but then invariably it's like, maybe one day you just look at these athletes doing 90, 90 wall breathing. They're all against the wall. like, Wait, why am I doing this with everybody again? Like what, because we have different presentations, right? And I have to ask myself and vet, like, why, why is everybody getting this? And for me, particularly, um, working with, I mean, now a lot of my clients are runners, sprinters, like you said, how power-based athletes. So I actually, and, and I, where I'm tend to look at it more, I tend not to get for me personally, get the athletes who are, you know, in pain, especially with like a thoracic that it links to like a thoracic issue. But from a performance aspect, I want to ask both of you guys. One of the things that I do value, and maybe this fits with what you said, Kyle, with you have like bandwidth of the spine from like, I guess you could say spinal engine. Like I want to get, have more range in this thing to operate. Uh, but I like to watch athletes crawl. And cause a lot of times how they crawl is how they run. And I, I did a, a presentation at a local sports performance facility a few months ago. And one of the things that we were working through is starting with crawling and then doing some things linking that and running. And people who would crawl, like the very typical person who probably lifts weights too much, doesn't do enough dynamic stuff, they, it looked, their, their whole thorax looked like one giant brick while they crawled. And then when they run, it's the exact same thing, a giant brick. And of course, that's going to impact your stride length negatively. You're not going to have as many movement options. You're probably going to be more likely to get hurt. And so my question is taking this all back, and then David, you talked about this with thoracic restrictions. For me personally, I'm less of the table tester person the more of these podcasts I've done, I know that's important. <laughs> I, I need, you know, in checking work, my, my mind is always like, oh, can I just check by watching you crawl? Can I watch but you do a cat cow or something that's, you know, if I have a group too, are there things we can do as a group that I can kind of observe thoracic range, like various, like a lizard crawl or something that, um, or rotational cat cows or something or frontal plane work? Um, can I, can I maybe get it that way on some level? But what I'm asking is this is, do you guys would you guys see a link between like crawling or quadruped based work and then observing the rib cage and then looking at okay you're stuck um maybe you know breath is breathing and breath is a good 
um, intervention for you because you just have no movement in there and that bandwidth's going to hurt you when you're sprinting. I hope that question makes sense or maybe it's an observation, but curious on you guys' take on that. Yeah, for me, for me, it makes sense, Joel, a big time. Like the like breathing and walking and and running are are more similar to di- than different. Now, of course, there's different demands and uh, and different slightly different phases of gait and different demands on tendons and things like that. But the movement that our joints make are are quite similar in terms of they're moving in similar directions and they may be not through the same amount of range of motion, but they're moving in the same direction. So when you look at a 90-90 breathing position. You flip it over and put someone in a crawling position, and it's it's basically them doing a ninety ninety with a reach up into the sky. Hmm. And the more you go down the, I think the more you go down the rabbit hole with the breathing stuff, you start to so, well, some it goes two ways. Some people make everything about breathing, and some people trash it, put it in the bin altogether. I think a lot of it actually comes down to variability, which is number one. And just getting things to move in ways that maybe they were a little bit stuck or joints that weren't moving enough and some joints that were were moving maybe too much. And then the second thing comes down to sensation. So giving someone an experience of tuning into your body and we would hope that that would transfer over then to how they actually move and run and, and play their sport or whatever without them actually having to cue themselves to do anything. So we're always looking for that thoughtless, fearless movement as speed of movement increases. And I think crawling is a really good way of training that sensation and training that variability. We can we can train both and then we don't need to focus on maybe as much of these big strong exhales and inhales. I think if we can get the rib cage moving and get people to feel their body and be aware of their body a little bit more than that, the, the breathing will come as a result of that sometimes. So it can be kind of get, sometimes it's, can I focus on the breathing more to get the ribs moving more? Or sometimes can I focus on the, getting the ribs and the body moving well? So the breath naturally is going to, to, to work a little bit better and it can be chicken and egg for some people. So crawling is basically, can you organize yourself? kind of over your left leg and over your right leg in a, in a crawling position. That's what it is. So I'm compressing one side of the body and opening the other. And breathing is the exact same. My, my ribs on one, one side as I move should internally rotate as the other side externally rotates and vice versa. And that's in, it, it, pretty much the entire body is going to do that. IR one side, ER the other side, and it just keeps going like a wave. And if you look at someone good crawling, it's, it's that kind of compression and expansion side to side. And if you look at someone crappy crawling, and that's the same with someone crappy running, that's the same with with someone trying to play golf. Everything just moves as a big segment. Um, there's not that variability. There's not that sensation in their body that they can kind of couple and decouple these areas. So I think in terms of, especially if you have bigger groups and you can't cue all these small little things, crawling is a, is a really good way to go, I would say. Yeah, I think, you know, just, even to piggyback on that, because I agree with all of it, right, is, you know, when I, when I look at the, the breathing strategies that are more specific to, you know, static holds and, and inhalation and exhalation, you know, we look at those initially as kind of what David said is, you know, driving sensation and having people just sometimes take a full breath for the first time ever. Like the amount of people that I've had go through that process that have never taken a full exhale ever, you know, like a real one is, is pretty high, right? And 
you kind of see their eyes open up and they kind of go through that, like, Oh shit, like this is, this is something different. And, and I think that's a big deal because it lets people just kind of realize maybe what limitations they might have in that area. And that if they can increase their ability or their competency in that area, they can probably increase a lot of performance as well. And, you know, our kind of big goal with that is, you know, we might have somebody do kind of these respiration-based exercises for a couple of weeks, uh, but we are going to try to make them more dynamic as quickly as we can. And I, and I do think crawling and different kind of locomotive strategies are a great way to do that. Um, because what we're talking about is, you know, especially with people, you know, the people that we work with that are super satchel, it's like what they cannot do really well is move reciprocally, right? They don't alternate at all. You know, even when they walk, they pivot their entire body, you know, as they walk, like they can't disassociate a rib cage from a pelvis. They can't rotate femurs. They have sometimes even limited hip flexion, hip extension because of their pelvic position. You know, so when we look at putting people kind of in that crawling pattern, if that's something that we're going to do, that forces them to do it because it also forces them into a different pelvic position. It forces them into pushing their rib cage away from the floor and driving a little bit more posterior expansion, right? When they go through that process. So I think when you look at the carryover and you look at like that con that, that contralateral shoulder extension and, and hip extension and that contralateral shoulder flexion and hip flexion, you know, those are all gait inspired things. And those are all going to be things that are kind of going to drive, like David said, kind of coupling and compression from one side to another as they go through that process. So with big groups, with the ability to assess like that's, or the inability to really assess everybody one-on-one, that is a good strategy. And, you know, we run into that because all of our clients, every single one of them is remote right now. So we can't do table tests. And if I was working with people individually, that might be something that I do. But at the end of the day, if somebody is exhibiting, you know, compression strategies or, or whatever, whatever we want to call it, you'll see it in all their movements. Like I, I can look at a bodyweight squat and be fairly certain what their push-up's going to look like and what their toe touch is going to look like and what their overhead flexion is going to look like. And I could probably guess what their ISA is from that as well. And, and have a good idea of what their gait looks like. Um, you know, so again, these things, we, we look at kind of primary assessments as far as like ISA for respiratory strategy and gait, and then secondary assessments as far as kind of active movement, just to see how those things are representing themselves and presenting themselves across kind of the bigger patterns that we're going to be training. And that allows us for better exercise selection, whether that be specificity-based or variability-based within the programming that we're giving these people based on their goals, based on their abilities. I like what you said, Kyle, about guessing ISA. Uh, it was, this was back like seven years ago. I was reading, I think it was triphasic training or something, but it was talking about um, like estimating what our maxes are based off of bar speed. And I, I believe maybe even talking about being able to estimate bar speed without actually seeing it like as a skill. Like, and I just think about skills that we develop as coaches that we don't necessarily need a number for and that we can see um, we can, I could see you doing this movement and, um, I can just kind of tell how everything's fitting together. And I think sometimes defining those skills that take time and practice is important. Um, when my kids go to bed at night and I sit outside the room, I'm reading like a story of, um, it's a, like sort of red cloud, some, um, like a Sioux war chief. And the, the, it was amazing what the Indian like youth could do before they were age 16 from a skill perspective. I don't, I'm taking this off the rails, but I just think it's so important to just to like have stuff that you can say, yes, I've hang I can hang my hat because I've developed the skill over time and observation. Um, so I do want to ask you about uh, markers of compression. I'd like to get to that. 
I just I feel like I'm just gonna take this deep down the rabbit hole and I don't know how many questions we're gonna get through, but I, I really I, I've been interested in this topic and I've this piggybacks off of some other podcasts that we've done lately. But before I get to that, um you guys mentioned, you know, the reciprocal nature and the ribs um internally and externally rotating. And most breathing drills, at least to my knowledge, are more bilateral in nature. So just curious how you guys would reconcile that with something that's alternating. Um, is there positions where you could be focusing on, or does that even matter? Um, like a bilateral breathing versus we're going to see this reciprocally in gait. Um, oh, go ahead, Dave. They're, they're, I don't know, are they bilateral in nature, Joel, if you're coaching them well? so, so. To go, to go back to table test for a quick second, the table test is mostly, to be honest, like you're saying, when you, when you get go, a good eye, the table test is really for the client more than you. So it, it allows them to, to see something and feel the range, and then you can retest and show them, look how much better that is, especially for someone who has maybe poor kind of proprioception and can't feel that as much through an active motion, and that's big for my buy-in. Um, if you're coaching your breathing drills well, for the most part, especially after that initial phase if someone is very very if, if someone is if someone has like both sides of the ribcage that are really up and both sides of the pelvis that are really forward then that that would be more of a bilateral breathing drill just to get everything to come back but as soon as possible you need to you need to get the, both sides of the body doing opposite things so even if it looks like i'm in a like a bilateral position, like a 90-90, I'm probably cueing someone to exhale and compress one side and inhale and, and expand the other side. And that is where the magic happens because airflow is actually what allows us to, one of the big things that allows us to shift side to side in the frontal plane. So to get my weight onto my right leg, my weight onto my left leg, if I, if I cannot expand, get expansion through the right side of my rib cage i won't get i won't be able to get my weight over on top of my left leg very very well um so so you could say that there's there's muscles on the left side of my body that pull me over to the left there's muscles on the right side of my body that push me over to the left like a, a glute max on the right side but there's also airflow that go, needs to go into the right side of my rib cage to push me to the left so whenever you can once you get good at coaching this stuff and seeing where where they are compressed through the rib cage, they need to be compressing one part with the exhalation and expanding the other part with the ex with the inhalation. So half the rib cage, that might be the front or the back or the side. But I need to think of I having I have an exhalation side of my ribs and I have an inhalation side of my ribs, and I might not need to coach that if I put them in the right position, which naturally just closes off a part of the rib cage. Or I might I might coach that if I don't want to get too advanced and I just say, right, here's here's what's going to happen. And I, I want you to feel more tension in your left abdominals. And now when you inhale, keep that tension there and it's naturally going to go to the right side. So most breathing drills, I would say, uh, once you get past that, like everything is up and forward, are unilateral or are, are both sides doing the opposite thing if you do it right. Yeah, I would agree on that as well. And, that, and that's where you're looking at it. You know, you might have somebody doing a, a 90-90 drill, right? And reaching with one arm and then, show, and then showing like shoulder extension with the other arm to kind of close that side down, right? And, and I think that's where you're going to see things that kind of resemble gait a little bit more. Um, another drill that I'll do with a lot of people uh, that, that is visually very unilateral is like an adductor drawback against the wall. Um, 
which will kind of drive lateral compression strategies. It will drive, you know, IR on the front flex tip. It will drive ER and extension on the back leg um, and allow for kind of the, again, extension and uh, or internal and external rotation of the rib as you're kind of reaching and drawing back through that process. And, and that's one that, you know, for, for a lot of our people, you know, especially kind of the sagittal monsters, it's, we sometimes will do it just for the, the, the same sensation that, you know, David's talking about almost with the cable test is they might feel their adductor for the first time doing that exercise. Like they, they'll get a massive cramp typically uh, because based on where they're at, you know, they're sitting there with, uh, you know, typically fairly big anterior pelvic tilts, so a lot of kind of just driving rotation of a femur and, and they're working through like the adductor complex in typically a lengthened position because of that. So as soon as we do that adductor drawback and we have them kind of force it and, and pull the, the femur back into the hip capsule, they get a shortened range of motion and, and they feel now that muscle firing in a concentric orientation for the first time and it'll cramp up on them almost right away. And, you know, that's again, like we're not using, you know, pain as a measurement there, but that is a proxy to them for just kind of the, again, the light bulb moment where they kind of realize like, oh, we're not, I'm not using this quite as, quite as much. I'm not leveraging this quite as much as I think I am. And that could be again, based on, uh, their actual stance with on some of their lifts, or again, just kind of their, their pelvic and femur positions or a combination of both based on the strategies they're using to drive, you know, force. So in terms of um, just putting this in a little bit more of a reductionist manner, if I'm trying to work um, the alternation in breathing, a good rule as a thumb is I could do like a sidelining, sidelining uh, type uh, uh, version. And I, I should put these in show notes too, like the 9090s, the adductor sideline. Uh, so people listening, just check out the show notes on justflysports.com. I'll make sure I get that in there. Uh, or if you're on your back doing like um, like a reach, would that would open the side of the reach. And then if you're, you said extension, so that'd be the arm behind you, like pinches off that one side. <laughs> I'm moving my arms here on zoom. So if you're listening, it's sorry. I, it's the limitations of audio if you're driving your car, but so basically like a reach would, would that would open up the side I'm reaching on, even if I'm in a bilateral typical position. Yeah. yeah. Here's, okay. here's a nice way to, to, to bring it back to crawling for you, Joel. So let's say we're in a crawling position. My knees are on the floor now. I'm not, I'm not going knees up off the floor. Now I could, but it'll get hard. So if people think about if they can even put their hands out in front of them, even if they're sitting on their chair, that's a crawling position now. And if you thought about stepping your right hand forward and bringing your left knee up, so my left shoulder and my left hip are coming down to meet each other. And then my right hand, my right shoulder and my right hip are moving away from each other. So I've got a lot of length through my right side. And now I can just take a couple of breaths there. And naturally, when I exhale, I should feel the left side compress more. And then if I can keep that compressed as I inhale, the air is going to have to go into the right side and expand over there. And then I can, so I could do three or four breaths there. And then I could switch sides and do three or four breaths there. And that's, that's, that's something that I do with my clients. It's just like, there's a, there's a couple of crawls, do a few crawls. Pause in, in, in the, that kind of contralateral position, inhale, exhale, and then switch, inhale, exhale, and magical things will happen without, without having to over-cue things. It's really cool. You just put them in positions and get them to breathe, and, and it will happen without all these million, billion cues, you know? I love what you said about the table test too being more for the client because I think that's really empowering to the coach. It's empowering to me because, I, like I said, I'm, my mind tends to be more like 
just give me a big complex thing and try to figure it out than than going into the details at least i'm oriented to i do do tests from time to time but i i mean it's empowering to me because i like i just like observing motion like i like observing a sprint i like observing a crawl and so what you just said there with the crawl i think that's it's empowering because i mean so many of us hopefully use a crawling and those locomotion things in our warm-up so it's nice to be able to see that um with just not just see it for a crawl, but also, like you said, if you flip it now to 90-90 breathing, and then what happens with the arms reaching, and how does that change the dynamics of the rib cage? And so, I just think that's really useful. And then I'm sure, too, like Kyle, what you said, like to notice someone with compressive strategies, I'd imagine someone who's majorly compressed probably is going to have a poor, like their crawl is going to be like maybe more shoulder blades back, anterior tilt, maybe type type vibe maybe head kind of sunk down a little bit like are there could you actually describe some of those um, elements because we've talked about compression a lot on this podcast recently so maybe just talking about it like what you would see in a crawl a squat that this athlete is indeed compressed and needs to be doing some work there yeah so what you usually see is just the extremes right so you'll see somebody dumping their entire rib cage down and really depending on like scapular retraction or you'll have somebody who maybe self-organizes a little better who actually goes into like a full flexion based pattern, right? Where they're almost rounding their entire upper back and they're just, and they're just drawing their, their pump handle down, right? Their sternum down. They're using an abdominal strategy because they have a hard time stabilizing a neutral strategy through, you know, airflow management or IAP or something of that nature. So you, you kind of just see the extremes of both ends where, they're either going to be kind of in a, a fully extended pattern, both through the, th- the the thoracic and the lumbar, or they're going to be in a very rounded pattern because it's they're trying to fight against that, right? And you see that with people with higher training ages more often because they they know inherently that they they don't want to be sagging their entire back, so they'll just move to the other end, and they're looking typically for a positional constraint, so they'll find the other end range, and they just go into full flexion. And they'll tuck into like a full posterior pelvic tilt. They'll squeeze their glutes as hard as they can. They'll flatten out their lumbar spine. There's no longer a lordotic curve there. And they'll really try to drive as much flexion through the thoracic as possible to, to just work against that. So what I'll typically see it is, is the extremes. And neither one of them allow for a ton of great like scapular and cubital movement and, and alteration because you're too stiff in both positions typically. So they don't allow for like reciprocation of, of those joint structures. Um, the, you have the underthinkers and almost the overthinkers is, is what that kind of turns into. And like we train almost exclusively like coaches and athletes. So we get a lot of people who, when we have them send in assessment videos, <clears throat> it's hilarious. Like they'll, we'll, I'll say, Hey, do a bodyweight squat. And you'll see this coach thinking so hard and it's like an eight centric second eccentric trying to do the perfect like body weight squat. And I'm like, no, just drop it, <laughs> drop it and stand back up. Like, show me how you actually move, not how you're trying to coach yourself into movement. And, <clears throat> and then you see like the hingy squat or the butt wink at the bottom or, or whatever it looks like, or the little bit of like collapse in the arch or, um, but it's, um, but yeah, when I'm looking at crawling, like that's what I'll typically see. It's similar to like what you would see in a plank or, or in a bear position from that perspective. I started my career in strength and conditioning, uh, having a very manufactured approach to training. We're gonna, you're going to do this many sets and reps of this exercise. You're going to do it like this. You're going to do this movement prep, but first and everything with that. And 
over eight years of time as a full-time strength coach, I slowly shifted into a more athlete-centered, organic approach uh, where athletes had more options on how to do things. They could express themselves. They could move with flow. We did more gymnastics. We did more games. We did more organic learning. I will never turn back on that. Along the same lines, I've gotten into a more uh, organic approach of supplementation, moving away from caffeine-heavy pre-workouts into herbs such as shiliagit, which you may have heard mentioned by guests on this show in the past as being awesome for strength and vitality. That's why I'm proud to partner with two-time previous guest on this show, Logan Christopher and his company, Lost Empire Herbs. If you want to check out some of the herbs that have led me into becoming a stronger and more vital human being, ones that I use personally, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. You can get 15% off your order there as well as get a 365-day money-back guarantee. Again, to get 15% off your order with Lost Empire Herbs and see my top recommended herbs that I use personally, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. All right, let's get on back to the show. In terms of the, actually, you got me thinking about this. So that when you talked about the compensation, people who like overdo the thoracic, if they're like going to do a toe touch test, because that's something that I've, like if people who have done the SFMA and that type of thing, there's the you know, toe touch test of what part of the spine is rigid. And you get those people who have that super rigid lumbar section, low back section. And I know that's also been linked research is linked being too rigid there to actually increase back injury, which is kind of funny because so many coaches are like, just prioritize almost that ramrod straight back. But so th- that tell me a little bit about that, because that's something that I've been thinking, like I get a lot of athletes who present like that. And th- how does that fit in then with can you maybe explain again how that is a compensation pattern with the breath and how you might use breathing to help give people some restoration there in that low lumbar spine that seems to be overly stiff? Yeah. I mean, for, for us, sorry, uh, we'll, we'll basically look at people who like when we do a toe touch, you know, and if you're already in a period of like full extension, if you're kind of in that extended posteriorly compressed you know, or anterior to posterior compressed, you know, uh, rib cage orientation, that's, that's going to kind of present you forward. That's going to allow for a more lordotic curve and an anterior pelvic tilt of the pelvis typically. And when you go into like a toe touch, what you typically see is a pelvis that has trouble orientating itself where everything's kind of leaning forward still on the toes. So you've got, again, kind of fully lengthened hamstrings, you've got tension in, in the calves as well. And they don't know that doesn't allow for any movement, you know, within the lower body. So you end up seeing stiffness also in the erectors where they're going to be completely flat, which for them is flexion, right? When you look at the natural curvature of the spine, you've got a lordotic curve there. So if you see a flat lower back, you're actually talking about flexion relative to a starting position. Um, what we actually see more of is a flat thoracic, especially an upper thoracic where people can't move that uh, joint structure where, you know, rather than being in a, in a little bit of a kyphotic curve, they're also flat, right? They're not in an extension pattern where they're extended into a curvature, but they're actually in a flat position on both of those. And you almost see like two flat lines that just look like a, you know, a 45 to 60 degree angle kind of branching from where the base of the rib cage is between the lumbar and the thoracic and driving air into the posterior thoracic from that standpoint will allow for the rib cage typically to retract back over a pelvis, right? Especially if we can find heels and a little bit of knee flexion there, which will allow for a relative posterior tilt, which will get us back to neutral and kind of, again, neutralize that lumbar spine back into its natural curvature. 
And that's kind of what I'm looking for from that perspective. David, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, actually, quickly, just what I got for that too is if someone does have that stiff low back, they need to be able to retract their rib cage on the thorax, get air into that rear thorax. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, just my own summary of that before I ta- uh, pass the baton to you there, David. Yeah, no, I, I that's, that's, that's pretty much it for me. There's, it's not, that's not a mystery. I usually see too much movement around the lumbar spine um, and not enough around the thoracics. Yeah. And even someone, I always get this like messages on Instagram. Oh, what if someone has a, a quite hypotic thoracic spine, you'll still see big chunks of it that just don't really move. It's just kind of pushed there, but, but it's still, it's still just stuck. It doesn't really move very well. Or someone you'll see it when they do their toe touch that, like a lot of the movement comes from just one area and there's not this nice, nice, even curve coming throughout. Um, and just to go back to something that Kyle was saying about, you see both extremes. So people are trying to get back into this kind of retracted rib cage position, but they end up just really overly flexing everywhere. Or they end up, or they're trying to um, get into this extension position. And so in the crawling, like the chest just drives forward or else they'll flex down into it. They can't maintain this relatively neutral position. The way I look at that would be they're trying to, they're, you're trying to get them to, to get the ribs moving and they're using like, it's almost like a fake strategy where they, they move through the spine to make it look like the ribs are moving and achieve the position that you're looking for. So in my mind, I think of it as they're using the spine to drive movement into the ribs, and we want to move. We want to use the ribs to drive movement mm. into the spine. They're two very, very different things. So we want to get the breadth to drive movement into the ribs, which drives movement into the spine. And and the people who can't do that, they'll fake it by just flexing and extending through some parts of their spine, and it looks like that. That's where. That's where you'll see a lot of people, I think, that they they don't quite understand what they're doing. And they, they think that, oh, I was told by my coaches five years ago to lift my chest up when I lift. And now someone told me that compression at the back of the ribcage is bad. And I, I, I need to expand that and keep my chest down and they'll flex down. And neither of them are what, actually what we're looking for. You're not, you're not, you're not using the ribs to drive movement and, and regain that neutral ish spine so the hips and the glutes and all these muscles can actually start to, to work very well so two very different things internal rotation and external rotation should drive of the ribs should drive movement into the spine not necessarily the other way around i like that the rib first mentality because it kind of it's almost one of those hidden things i think it's so easy to just look at the spot what's the spine doing and because that's like the big obvious thing i mean i know i'm guilty of that i know even mm-hmm. for me like my if I do that toe touch test personally, like my low back compared to my upper is a little bit stiff. I've had a lot of swimmers who are in the same boat. And for me, I can make my low back round, but I know I'm, as you're talking, like, I know I'm cheating to do it because I'm a really good yeah. compensator. So I'm just making my spine go before my ribs go. So if that was the case for me, um, this is why I got you two guys on here so I can fix my, my, my back <laughs> and my breathing. Uh, so if, if that's me and I want to do a uh, a ribs first mentality because I'm stiffer down there. Do I, I just need to spend like like time in like a quadruped breathing drills, getting air into my like posterior uh, thoracic area or something like that? Like what's a like how do we modulate that breathing breathing strategy to say ribs first, like this this first and then um, then everything else following? You don't necessarily need to be in any particular position, Joel. It's just about understanding that 
understanding the positions we're looking for and understanding then and taking that with you. So you could take that with you to a split squat and, and, and all of these things. And if you're actually breathing well and you're teaching, bracing is not a great word, but you're just teaching yourself to be in the position and understand what that feels like, then you can go and move and, and that's fine. And that, that movement 22,000 times a day of the breath actually coming in and out of your body is driving motion into your spine. And, and that's what we're looking for. So you don't necessarily need to think ribs first, but if your ribs don't move very well, then it's, it's definitely not going to be ribs first. It's going to be, it's always going to be spine and this big chunk of rib cage isn't going to move. And the people, a lot of strength and, strength and conditioning coaches and therapists, they actually understand this, but they don't realize they understand it because they chase they understand the importance of it. They chase thoracic mobility. You see that all of the time. And there's all these million thoracic mobility drills in the gym. And they're so close. But they just don't realize that it, if, if you actually drove movement into the rib cage, that would mobilize the thoracic one million times faster than spending five years doing all these foam roller reaches and thoracic mobility drills. So we, we just use the ribs, the breath and the ribs and the position to drive movement into the spine through the rib cage that's what's that it, it's so easy when you start to see it happening and it just requires two things inhalation and exhalation which means internal rotation and external rotation of the ribs and then we don't actually really need all these low level breathing drills anymore you'll, if you go on coil's instagram you'll see every position if you know what you're looking at you'll see every position that he's loading people in is, is achieving these strategies all of the time. And we don't need to spend that much time in low-level drills, but a lot of people need some low-level drills initially because they have to understand what it feels like to do these things. That's such a good point. I was just talking on a pod, the podcast that will go up before this was talking about um, like a lot of coaches love to do like, like single leg hop and stick drills for like, you know, for, for their athletes. And they keep doing that. It's like, this is our basics, but you can move beyond that. Like you can, once you can do it, like you're good. You can, you, you've got that down and now you can keep advancing, go on to the next thing. So I really like the idea of once you have these basics mastered, that everything becomes the basic. Once you get used to that, the hang of that. Um, I want to ask you guys a little bit more about that in the sense of, uh, there was a, a, a user question on frontal plane and that's something i'm interested in too and this i think this can be a very performance grade question as well i'm working with two sprinters right now whose acceleration first few steps out of a two-point or the blocks could get a lot better because they don't have a lot of frontal plane usage they actually aren't they aren't being able to toss their momentum back and forth between feet super well so they end up really narrow out of the gate um now i will say too something really cool i thought of as you were talking david was uh, the way i see this in applied like biomechanics is the idea that, and I, I agree with this, like the head, when you step forward, the head generally tracks over the foot of that side, and then you step to the other foot, and the head tracks over the other um, foot. But uh, even, going even deeper, Darian Barr and I were talking about that, and he was saying, well, may, what if it's a little bit more of the sternum over the, the, the foot? And I, and I, and I kind of thought about that, and sometimes as I'm running, like I, no, I just sit and I notice, and I notice it's really my rib cage that's actually feeling like it's moving. If you move your head intentionally, you might just start swaying your head to the side and that's your compensation. But it's like, no, like feel for the rib cage to put itself over that foot that you're stepping towards. It's like the body's pneumatically stacking itself. And then, yeah, the head's going to move over a little bit automatically because, well, you're, unless you really want to keep your head in the middle, I don't think that's going to work out too well for you if your rib cage is subtly creeping over there. But 
anyway, that just got me that I feel like those compensations can be um, on multiple levels. And so what I want to ask you guys, and I think this is so cool, um, just like kind of like the basics, then moving uh, beyond the basics. And then obviously, too, I know, David, you got the, you know, the products with all those basic level movements and foundational movements. I'll, I'll make sure I get just maybe we get some videos and then links as well in the show notes for this. But moving once you have those basics established, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about applying it into the frontal plane because um, I, I, I have these two sprinters that I need. It's just like I and, and they have those um, compressive like stiffer low backs, those typical things you'll see. And so often I think when we see people who struggle like in a sprint start and oh, I want you to get more frontal plane, but now we're not going into breathing or breath work. Um, maybe we can go because this was a question uh, like a pr- applied frontal plane um, thoughts. So if I'm trying to take this alternating reciprocal work into the frontal plane, what are some um, movements you guys like? What are some things you're looking for? And how are we coaching the flow of air through these things? Yeah, I mean, I, this might be a little different than than David's answer, but you know, my my general thing when I look at sprinters, especially like an acceleration phase out of the blocks, is because you've got decreased ground time because you're probably not hitting early and mid phase of gait, and you're going to be typically just relying on elastic strategies through the forefoot, you're probably going to be more sagitalized coming out of the blocks of a sprint anyway, where because everything's happening so fast, you're not actually using or maximizing a ton of compression strategies from a lateral perspective. And you're actually going to start hitting that once you get out of that initial acceleration phase and into a sprint phase where you're more upright and able to hit more of like a mid mid gate to late phase gate uh, stride. And that's something I've actually been looking at a lot just through my own running, through looking at other runners where I almost differentiate those two. And you'll typically, if you look at sprinters straight on, like you'll also see sprinters. There's a, there's a terrific video uh, bolt coming out of the blocks of this where they almost look like they're skating where to make up for the lack of rotation, of the pelvis, they're taking wider steps and driving inward off of that, that kind of toe push off as they're also driving forward. And then they get narrower as they're getting into full stride length and hitting mid phase and late phase gate, both and working more on like front side mechanics instead of pure backside mechanics. And, you know, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot where I'm not sure if I want a ton of reciprocation or a ton of lateral compression strategies in those first initial steps, because I don't think airflow I think at that point, you're using more of a muscular or elastic strategy rather than a respiration strategy. And you kind of adopt that respiration strategy as musculature fatigues later on in the actual sprint. And I think to be able to transition from those two things from one into the other is actually a skill that you see a lot of like elite level sprinters be able to adopt that lower level sprinters probably don't do as well from a transition phase. Yeah, just just quickly to piggyback on that, I know that <laughs> like oftentimes you just take a deep breath in on the start and just exhale. You could do the first twenty meters, so it's not like you're like every step is a breath or anything like that. It's just you know holding pressure to let the like you said more elastic and muscular yeah, strategy. Like, I mean, sprinting's not aerobic, you know, for the most part. It, it, like short sprints, like I ran the four hundred and you know up through college, and that's very aerobic. You know, that's terrible, and, and you you will be. Uh, you will have to be able to, you know, have efficient respiration kind of throughout that process. But the the big thing I think is, I think a lot of people right now are kind of over coaching breath in 
non-aerobic activities as well. Like we also see this with our power lifters. Like if I've got 700 pounds on my back, like I don't care about breathing. I, I am going to brace with that. And that's okay because it's not gait. It's not normal movement. It's sports specificity. And, and I think that's okay from that perspective. Now, can I go run a mile trying to brace my abs and hold my breath? Absolutely not. Like that's not going to work out very well for me. I have to develop a different strategy for a different task at that point. And what you see with the longer, and you see this even with like uh, morphology and athletes kind of adopting a position for their sport where the shorter the sprint, the more extended the athlete typically is. And when you look into longer distance running, going to middle distance and then into long distance, you see people who are typically have a little bit more of a flexion based or neutral pattern that allows for better respiration mechanics and less of a muscular strategy. Because if they're using a muscular strategy in a longer distance run, they're just going to fatigue earlier because it's more inefficient from that perspective. That's awesome. Um, so that's, that's interesting to think of too, because I, as I get into maybe the more of these frontal plane questions then and, and the breath work. So really this is the frontal plane and the breath and what you see in like, like a lateral lunge or even a forward lunge where you're trying to line things up in a particular way. That's probably something that's going to fit more with upright running established, you know, you're breathing, you're doing like distance training more than you, what you would see in uh, like an explosive cut, perhaps that's just pop. Like, you know, I mean, the thing I guess I think of is you are like, you see people with their cheeks puffed out. Like, like I had a guy, my highest jumper, um, back when I was at Cal, a guy on the swim team, he jumped 41 on the just jump mat. Like you could see his, the pressure he would generate in his thorax. You could see his cheeks would puff out. Like he could just generate one, this, this shot of pressure that fit with what he was doing explosively. Um, so well, I guess I'll ask this is so like, um, so like anything like a cut, like anything like that, that's not really, is that something that you would, how would you address that is what I'm trying to say in, in the, in like lunges, lateral lunges for like change of direction or, um, anything like that, I guess. I, and however the breathing fits in or the, whatever fits in there, if that makes sense. I, I think that's going to be a little bit dependent on the athlete's ability, you know, because again, when you look at high level athletes, like their ability to self-organize and cheat that system is really high sometimes. And if I'm, if I'm working with a high level athlete, I don't always want to change their ability to organize that and be efficient within that because there, there's other factors besides just biomechanics. When you start looking at morphology and, and everything else, like a lateral cut or a change of direction from somebody who's six, nine is going to look very different from somebody who's five, nine, right? Like that's going to be a different mechanism, especially when you, when you factor in like their own body weight and being able to decelerate that and then it, it kind of explode out of it. Um, so when, when you kind of look at this factor, like I do think if you're, if you're looking at lateral movement from a frontal plane context versus forward propulsion from a frontal plane context and reciprocation, I think that's where you do probably, you know, in, in my experience, find a little bit of pronation, a little bit of inside edge and a little bit of internal rotation so that you can drive more external rotation extension through that leg to get a better change of direction, right? Because if you're going into that lateral cut and you're already mm. supinated or you're already in ER, well, you can't drive further supination and further external rotation because of that. You have nowhere to go. Like it's the same thing when we talk about thoracic extension and driving more extension. If you're, if you're already at bandwidth, you're just going to compensate somewhere else at that point just shifting you're shifting the impotence of it 
with um that actually maybe this would be a good segue to talk a lot about breathing i do want to ask you guys a little bit about maybe that first layer of like applied breathing drills i i do want to get uh maybe if we have like let's say 15 minutes left i maybe we can cover that just like first layer like in terms of we're getting off of um being our backs or side laying or quadruped like getting up into basic movements maybe it's a squat or a lunge or a half kneeling or whatever it is i'd be curious where you guys would take like the the breath and breathing beyond that um and then i would like to get into some of that stuff with the foot and the pressure in that because that is an interesting that's something i wanted to get to with the feet maybe the last little 10 minutes we can chat about the foot a little bit so um you know david you had mentioned that with uh, and David, I'm going to have to go back to lower body basics in light of all this too, because I like to tie that into crawling and everything else. That's like my language is crawling, just to, to tie it to crawling. And that's like, yeah. that's how I read. So, um, but anyways, um, so moving beyond, like what would be like the first, like there's, I mean, are we talking like just a squat? Are we talking, I mean, I guess we talk crawling, a lunge, like how, what are some, um, what, like, I guess you could call it second wave management techniques of pressure on some of these other drills that you guys are looking at? Yeah, so I think with um, just to go back to the frontal plane, I I kind of put up a a short. I was I was doing a coaching call with a with a with a coach. Uh, shout out to Robbie there in Cork, but um, uh, we were talking about the frontal plane, and I, I said in it, it's the most important plane, and um, I was kind of I was kind of laughing about it, and I also said you can't really say that because they all depend on each other, but it kind of is the most important plane because. If I can't shift side to side, people can talk about breathing drills all they want and talk about getting the ribs down all they want. But if I can't actually shift my mass side to side on top of my left leg, on top of my right leg, my ribs are always going to have to come back up at the front and up my pelvis is always going to have to move forward, come forward because I'm kind of I'm almost falling forward in, because I can't create that side to side motion to move my body forward. So we have to get that frontal plane and we have to train that frontal plane. And that's the plane that is massively neglected in the gym, I would say. Hugely ne- neglected. People think they're doing frontal plane work when they start to throw in things like classic squats and stuff like that. And yes, you're working, and there's, I have no problem with, that, with those drills, but, and yes, you're working maybe more frontal plane muscles, but if you don't have your center of mass over on top of one leg, then you're not really working the frontal plane. So it's it's what what we think is frontal plane, really, if you want to look at it, it's not. Because I can see someone who cannot abduct one leg or one hip or, or adduct the other hip or whatever, and then they can do this, these caustic squats and it looks perfect. But as soon as I try to get their pelvis over, just like you're saying, the head over the foot, and, and do, a, do a drill in that position, then they can't get there. They actually cannot get there or they just compensate massively to get there so frontal plane is hugely important that's what that's what allows our rib cage to stop having to always extend like our, our whole back muscles always having to extend so the head over the foot thing is an interesting one to me because of course the head should be over the foot or somewhere close to that when we when we move because otherwise if it's been left behind that means my vestibular system there's a problem there so my eyes have to be on the horizon and if my spine is going to laterally flex, side bend over my left leg, my neck is going to have to laterally flex back to the right to keep my eyes on the horizon. And I should be stacked over my left foot. So you're, you're, what you're saying about the sternum is probably, it's probably better cue, Joel, to get that sternum over the foot because people, I've seen this, this seems to be a fancy cue now, head over foot. And a lot of people are talking about that. I've seen people doing it, doing it by 
laterally flexing their head over their foot. And now my head is over my foot, but now my eyes are, are my vestibular system is fucked, basically. My <laughs> eyes are not on the horizon in that position. So if I can organize my center of mass over my foot, meaning probably this big chunk of meaty, bony stuff in the middle of my body, my sternum, my rib cage over my foot, there's my frontal plane. Because everything else has to organize around that. So when it comes to things in the, in the weight room, simple frontal plane things. Put someone's front foot on something. As soon as I put uh, my left foot in a split squat up on a small weight plate, my vestibular system has to reorganize and say, okay, now, now if, I, if I don't laterally flex over that left leg, then I'm, my, my left foot being on, on a plate, my pelvis is hiked up on the left side, and my, my spine is going to have to laterally flex to the left. If it laterally flexes to the right, I'm moving back to the right side. So I'm not actually loading on top of my left leg. I put up videos on, on Instagram and stuff of, of people who think they're, they're doing split squats and they're saying, oh, I'm loading my right leg now and now I'm loading my left leg when I have my left leg in front. But actually, in the split squat, their body is falling back towards the, the back leg all of the time. And they, they can't organize because they're missing that frontal plane movement in the body. So... It's all, it's all the same drills that you see. It's just how well you organize it. People take, for me, they take too, too wide a stance um, and too, too long a stance usually. So they can't get their center of mass over the foot. It falls between both legs. And if that sternum and that belly button are not somewhere over that midfoot, then it's not, it's probably, you're probably not moving or loading the frontal plane like you, like you, like you think you are. Um, so it depends on, can I put a foot on something? Can I can I hold a weight in a certain position that forces me to get there? And we don't have to we don't have to get that fancy with things. We just have to understand what the frontal plane actually is and what it looks like. And it's not necessarily about moving a femur out to the side, like you see people doing. Oh, I move my femur out. I'm moving in a frontal plane. No, your your center mass has to be over that leg. Um, so. For me, as, as we go along, then the breathing drills, I would never, I get that question all the time. How should I breathe when I'm running? And if, if you've done your drills and you, your, body, your body can move into these positions, then it, it should move there. The nervous system has downloaded that and says, yeah, I'll take that because it feels better. It's safer and I can perform better by moving in this way. And if you haven't and you're trying to cue people to, to find these things, while the speed of movement has increased, you've you've gone the wrong way about it. The, that that is not how human movement is organized in the brain and the nervous system. Yeah, I, I can. I think that's a big thing. Is you know, it's and I think we even talked about this when I was on. You know, the last time Joel was. You know, when I'm running, I don't think about breathing at all. I just breathe. You know, and I. But I think like David's saying, like if I want to drive frontal plane and something that's going to look more like running mechanics from a weight room perspective that that front foot elevated split squat that he's describing just load that ipsilaterally on the front leg and it's going to pull your pelvis over that foot it's going to pull your rib cage over that foot it's going to drive more lateral compression on the side you're holding the weight as you're going into like deep hip flexion on that side you know and I, and I think that's where like david said like even in like some of the introduction certs that I, that I took 10 years ago, you look at the, the books and they're showing like frontal plane movement and they've got somebody doing a really terrible like side lunge 
where their knee is the entire, you know, a foot outside of the rib cage, right? They're just completely externally rotated and abducted there. And that's just moving sagittal sideways. Like that's not that, like, that's just moving in a lateral direction, but that's not frontal plane. Like, like David's saying, like you have to be able to manipulate your center of mass over a foot to be able to actually get into the frontal plane, whether we're talking pelvis or rib cage or just the entire axial skeleton there. It, it cracks me up though, that this industry, I mean, at least parts of this industry have managed to make everything sagittal plane. Cause if you look at how do you coach the, the split, the, the lateral squat, it's always push your knee out, like for whatever mm-hmm. reason. <laughs> and, um, that, I just find that humorous. I, I like David, what you said just about like, this doesn't have to be complicated. Like it can be very simple. And while you guys are talking about that front foot elevated ipsilateral loaded, I could think, shoot, that's just as simple as carrying like four bags of groceries as on one side up the stairs, right? Like. You're just, you're loading this side. I mean, and maybe just being a, I guess, a, you know, a diverse human being having to do these kinds of, of tasks, like it, it almost could show up on a daily basis in some level. Mm-hmm. But I think about, you know, we, it, it, I like the idea too of like setting things up so we don't even have to necessarily coach them up, yeah. like get that load on the outside of the leg and, and elevate and, and let that be your coach on a level yeah. versus on whatever we try to coach if we're stepping up and the athletes step way out or whatnot. Yeah. I mean, I, Always, always will defer to that. One hundred percent. If you can set up the right drill and you can help your client understand foot pressure, so where so, roughly where the weight should be in the feet, um, you you've you've gotten ninety nine percent of what you need to get. Yeah, uh, that's a big thing that we try to do is just put people in a position or use constraints to kind of force a position where they can't screw it up, especially from the remote perspective where we can't cue everybody that we're working with live right and different split squat variations or heel elevations on certain things or just even how you're loading a weight right because as soon as you're holding a weight in either hand or in front of you or you know on your upper back you're changing your center of mass at that point right you're you're redistributing you know the actual weight that you're holding so just giving people different loading options to drive where their rib cage is going is going to be a really easy strategy. Like if somebody is posteriorly compressed front load them. If somebody has a hard time getting a pelvis and a rib cage over, a, over an instep load them ipsilaterally on that side, right? It'll drag them over there. They'll have to adjust to it. And, and I think that's a really easy strategy that almost any trainer can probably start looking at when they're working with their clients. That's good stuff. So on the, the spirit of the lateral um, movement in general, I, I do want to talk about foot pressures and directions. Uh, before that, though, there was a couple, uh, just quickly, there was a couple of people who had asked about plantar fasciitis. So now we're totally shifting gears a little bit, but I did want to get to this before we close out. Um, David, you were the person who actually really, truly helped me get rid of my Achilles stuff that bothered me for forever by helping me mobilize my calcaneus. And you were talking about how you've done that and been through that yourself. And I've since that, I've been able to notice that in other people, um, it's helped me to actually alleviate Achilles uh, issues in others. But the thing that still I'm a little more confused on is plantar fasciitis. Um, mm-hmm. How are those related, different? Um, and just, yeah, more than one person asked that. So I'm curious on you guys' take on that versus maybe uh, Achilles issues. Yeah, you don't, you, don't have to look, um, you don't have to look at it too differently, I would say, Joel, to, to Achilles. because where the where the where the pain point pops up or where the symptom pops up is 
is irrelevant really i would say especially when it comes to when it comes to biomechanics it's kind of irrelevant especially down around that area so the the achilles the plantar fascia basically you were asking the question can they can they pronate and can they supinate which means that they're they're three-dimensional movements of the foot which which means can the plantar fascia fully lengthen and fully shorten in three dimensions so that that's from from a biomechanical standpoint, of course, there's a loading. Like, how much load have you just done something absolutely crazy? I know, uh, I know a guy who, I, I actually funny story, very quickly funny story. I know a guy who, um, he he was a client of mine, and he had plantar fascia for two years because he had a row with his son and took his phone off him and put it on the floor and tried to stamp on his phone and he hit his heel and. Um, <laughs> And he ended up with plantar fascia problems for like two years. So I can't really call that a, a biomechanical thing because he just spiked his load instantly um, and his anger, his anger got in the way of it. So, so that would be more about a nervous system that just got a massive shock, I would say, and a trauma to the area. And it's about reintroducing load into the system. Now, the best way of doing that is to start to mobilize the feet. So just like with your Achilles, the first question you have to ask is, can they get their heel to plantar flex? So the calcaneus, can it plantar flex and dorsiflex? So basically, if people want to think of that, like the pelvis in the sagittal plane, can it anterior tilt and posterior tilt? The heel should be able to do the exact same movement. If it can't do that, that means it can't, can't really stay on the ground and it will, the heel will lift up too early when they walk. And when the heel lifts up too early, the midfoot can't actually load and they end up pushing into the toes. And what you'll see with people with plantar fascia problems all of the time is that a lot of the time, I shouldn't say all of the time, is that they race into their toes way too quickly. And when the toes start to grip into the floor, the whole foot has to lock up. The plantar fascia is really, really locked from there. So the the I know we've we've me and you, Joel, or you and I have spoken so much about like getting the calcaneus, the evert and invert, that frontal plane movement, exactly like we're talking about with the pelvis and the ribs, that frontal plane movement up above is so important. And it's so important at the heel as well. But I can't get that frontal plane movement at the calcaneus if I can't get sagittal plane movement first. So plantar flexion and dorsiflexion of the heel, because instead of the, as my weight starts to travel forward in my foot towards my midfoot, if my calcaneus can't plantar flex, then that means it has to lift up off the floor. We'll just talk about walking gait here. That means that if it lifts up off the floor, it's not going to evert and invert because it's raced, you've raced into the toes. Does that make sense? I know that can be a little bit, a little bit complex, but so sagittal plane allows the frontal plane movement of the heel then the, the heel to start to tip in. And if I can't get that sagittal plane length at the foot, I can't get the midfoot to drop and I can't get the um the plantar fascia to lengthen and then spring me back. So it stays it stays locked up all the time. That makes sense. And I, I like actually something you said. You posted, David, about this about the need for the heel. I think sometimes we get in reductionist modes where um like, oh, only do hops on the balls of your feet or something. Um, or only like like Kyle, you had mentioned, only like changing direction, just mashing on the fifth, like, you know, the outside edge of the foot when force has to travel through the foot and that's that's important to realize like and again i I mean i'll still use things like hopping on the balls of the feet sometimes just to strengthen that element but like we're going to use the whole foot and so i I, that's a good um thing to uh, just to remember i know for you like when i was 
coming to you with Achilles issues. That was actually the game changer was just put that like Gary's uh, wedge directly behind the heel and just try to get it to tip to plantar flex that calcaneus to plantar flex to tip anteriorly and do it like hundreds of times than I did. And that was, yeah. I guess that's like the gateway, right? Sagittal, unlock sagittal, and then you get lateral and um, yeah, there you go. exactly. And then when you go to, when you go and do your hopping drills and the drills where we definitely don't want you on your heel, the heel is still, is still, and the midfoot as a result of that are still moving better from your simple little drills, just like we're talking about the breathing drills earlier. Your spine and your rib cage are now moving a little better and can accept a little bit of load and help you organize. It's not that I'm thinking, Jesus, now when I'm changing direction, playing basketball, I need to exhale. No, we've done that work and now you're, it's there in your body. Your nervous system has downloaded it and it's going to use it. So go balls of the foot all you want for the, for the hopping and all of these drills. But if the midfoot has been mobilized, you're sweet. It's going gonna, it's gonna to help your Achilles tendon work so much better because the Achilles now can, can get that little bit of recoil as well in it. But if the heel is locked up, people, this frustrates the life out of me that people, when we have a problem around the hip, people will look at the tissues of the hip and the pelvis and say, oh, can the hip move in external rotation, internal rotation, flexion, extension, all of these ways? Can the hip, can the bones actually move? But when we have an Achilles problem or a plantar fascia problem, they don't say, can the heel move? They just say, how strong is your calf? So it's, it, 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 if, it, if it's good enough for one area of the body, it's good enough for the other area of the body. So the only question then is, do these people actually think that the heel should not be able to move? Because if, 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 they, if they didn't think that, if they, if they understood the heel should be able to move, they would check, can the heel move, especially when it comes to tissues that attach to the heel? Yeah, that's, um, I mean, it's, it's really interesting too that to think about, cause I've thought about this, like what's happening when you're just doing a ball, the foot hop as well, which you mentioned, like that the rest of the structures can be involved. And I like the idea of just go, there's, there's basic fundamental movements, like motions that should be in place. And that's where I know, I know you have, I think like three, like levels of basic, like you got lower body one and two, and you just came out with core basics, I believe. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's like, so that's like the basics, like you should be able to do X, Y, Z, and then it'll just go with you. Like you said, ball, the foot hop, that heel motion should be going with you. And mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So that's my, that's my rant for the day. I'll leave Kyle go from here. <laughs> <laughs> you set up, teed him up. So I, I love the rant. No, I, I think that's, I think that's the big thing. And I like, I like how David presents it where, you know, not every exercise has to be everything, right? Like you can bounce on the balls of your feet without having to worry about your heel. If you have mobility in your heel and you've done the other things, if you do have the ability to evert and invert when appropriate. And I think, you know, from, from that perspective, it's just, we're looking at drills that are really, you know, aimed or focused on different tasks. And trying to make them into things that they're not sometimes. And and you've got yielding strategies, you've got overcoming strategies or whatever you want to call them. And you've got times where you want more heel movement and times where you don't based on your contact with the actual ground and what's happening from a force production perspective. And I think when people can't differentiate the intention behind what you're trying to do based on the environment and your task, the the bad things are probably going to happen because you lose all context of the movement itself or the drill itself from that perspective. And you start trying to apply it across the board to everything. And just because something works in one scenario, doesn't mean it's the end all be all strategy for everything else. 
So speaking of applying things to everything, maybe we can do a five minute drill for this last, um, just like, uh, portions of the foot, pressures of the foot, um, feet being turned in or out on things that maybe we can take it from this as I, I, Kyle, you mentioned just like a cut step. Um, and a Darian bars mentioned this, like there's always time. You always have the flow of time that dictates pressures moving from the inside edge to outside edge back to inside edge. And could you guys talk briefly on, maybe we could start with the idea of the cut step and the flow of force across the foot, but really just preferential pressure on inside edge, outside edge. What does you guys take on that type of thing uh, in, when we're looking at athletic movement? You want to go first, David? Or do you want, do you want you me have to have this one, Kyle? This is, a, this is <laughs> we're in murky waters here. So. This could have yeah, been the whole show, uh, so I'm just saying, I just threw it in there at the end. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's just kind of just what you described, right? Where it, And what David just described really well is your foot is got a ton of a ton of bones and a ton of joints a lot of muscle and a lot of fascia within it so whenever we're like if we're treating it like a brick and we're trying to find you know either the outside edge or the inside edge on every single thing we do uh, in isolation we're not appreciating the dynamic nature of the foot and if we look at force production you know and, and force dispersion uh, like we're going to go from inside edge to outside edge to inside edge, or we're going to go from outside to inside to outside, right? Like when we look at traditional gait mechanics, just moving forward, you've got a heel contact where you're going from the outside to the inside and in mid stance and back to the outside and toe push off. And when you look at a, a lateral cut step, you're looking at a lot of the same things are just happening very fast and they're happening in a different plane. And And I think, there's no one answer where you're relying solely on one of those things because uh, as again, as David has mentioned, like, and he's mentioned on his social media a lot, you can't, if you can't supinate, you also can't pronate. If you can't pronate, you also can't supinate. If you can't find outside edge, uh, you're probably, you probably have trouble with inside edge and vice versa as well. Right. Because you have to be able to transition from one thing to another and, when you look at anything gait related or movement related uh, statically and not, not as an appreciation of the transitions from one place to another, I think you're doing a huge disservice to, to just movement and biomechanics in general from that perspective, because if you're constantly on your outside edge, like where are you coming from? Like, how are you propelling yourself in either a lateral or forward uh, direction from a propulsion perspective? And the same thing with inside edge, like it's always going to be both. From my and a, and a transition from one to another, from my perspective. Yeah, when it for me with with change of direction, I don't I don't overthink what the foot is doing. Um, I actually don't really think about it a whole lot at all, unless it's <laughs> like there's an obvious problem there or, or something really doesn't look right. Um, change of direction for me when we get into speed of movement starts to become about sagittal plane uh, stiffness for me, which sounds funny. But if someone can't get co-contractions around the knee joint, then they actually, they're probably going to sink down into the movement too much. Now, they can start low. They can start in a squatted position. But when I decide my foot hits the floor and I want to change direction from there, if I have more sink than I need, I'm too slow. And the too slow guys are the guys that you don't see on your television. Mm -hmm. um, trust me, I see them in my treatment room because they ended up getting injured because the, the too slow, I can't overcome muscle slack, which is something Franz Bosch talks about. I need to sink into my movement to try and tension my muscles. 
And that's a, that's not a very safe strategy in one way because the joints, like my knee joint is going to have to go through more range of motion there and I have to try and pick up muscle slack by doing that, by lengthening through muscles. So not very safe, number one. And number two, not very, not very powerful. So that's, that's what I think about. Can I get that a little bit more stiffness when I change direction? So I don't, of, co- of course, of course, if I'm, if I'm starting in a, a more supinated or more pronated position, it's probably not ideal because I don't have, I don't have as much room or, or as much range to reorganize if I do need outside edge or inside edge. That's why neutral is a really cool place to help people find because now they have options mm-hmm. left and right. So I, I, when I start to get a speed of movement and change of direction work, I want to make sure that they can access these movements left and right. Calcaneus can go frontal plane, sagittal plane, pelvis, hips can do all of this stuff. And now I want to make sure you can overcome muscle slack very quickly. And I want to make sure you can get these co-contractions around the knee joint so that you're not sinking down into movement and you can actually be a little bit stiffer when you're when you do decide to, to change direction. So that's that's where my mind goes with that tool. Yeah, I like the idea of giving I snack my microphone there. Mm-hmm. Giving an athlete the tools and the things they should be able to do. Can you protate pronate? Do you have adequate pressure on like the metatarsal heads and adequate foot pressure? And then just watch what happens. I, I find that no matter what, every time we tend to um overcoach things and every time i've focused really to be honest at all i mean i didn't know any of this pressure stuff on inside or outside edge or at all like on earlier in my athletic career and i wouldn't say it hurt me at all it's just sometimes it is interesting some sometimes for me to notice reference points like if i'm doing a flying 10 meter sprint where does the force seem to be most prevalent i like going about it that way that teaches me what my body is trying to do at this at this position at this collision at this angle Um, if I try to think about getting somewhere, sometimes that just seems to interfere and I'm already pretty too heady as it is sometimes I think too much anyway. So sometimes I I like the idea of just get it. Can you do all these basic skills, drills, movements, pronate properly, and then kind of watching, um, observing at at that point. Yeah. For a lot of the field sports, at least Joel that I work with, when we start to bring in, um, change of direction stuff i love to have a ball involved like if they're a gaelic football or a basketball or i just have a ball in their hands and like you're hitting that cone and you're changing direction as if you're going back that way or whatever the hell it is i love a ball or some external task because it looks so much better as soon as you bring that in rather than having them focus on anything that's in their body um some kind of task and you'll see them organize way 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 better and it will feel way better for them as well so i, I ask Whenever we can bring in tasks when there's speed of movement involved, then that's that's the goal too. Good stuff. Well, hey, um, I think uh, again that that type of topic we could talk about it a long time. But I, I mean, shoot, we probably got through two questions, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to get back some other time. But it was it was fun talking to you guys, um, man. I, I really appreciate both you guys' knowledge. Um, I definitely take a, a lot away from these. And it'll be good going through the clips too, as I kind of try to refine my language, going back to crawling and whatnot, and and how all this impacts that, and a lot of other things as well. Um, before we get out of here, anything you guys want to share from any anything new? How to fo- how to follow you? Where to find you guys? Uh, products, things you have out? If there's anything you want to mention there, uh, mine's super simple. You know, the easiest way to reach me is just through Instagram. You know, it, it probably DMing, and then um, all of our stuff is on the website as far as uh, just compoundperformance.com for 
both coaching and trainer development uh, sections. So it's, it's all there. Um, we're, we're doing some live seminars here later this year, and we'll be promoting that as well now that we're able to, to travel around a little bit. But other than that, it's all kind of the same stuff. I would recommend going to Kyle's Instagram instead of mine because for me you just you'll just you'll just see um you'll just see like videos of my girlfriend cutting my hair while we were in lockdown and um and me playing with my dog and then some 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 videos of athletes doing different things and stuff like that. So um so yeah, if if someone is interested in that, they can go to David Gray Rehab G R E Y, um and uh, that's the website as well. But I'll, I'll enter at your own risk, I would say. If you want to see David uh, playing with his dog videos, then go there. So awesome. <laughs> your, your dog's agility is fantastic, by the yeah. way. Change the direction's on point. My boxer dog, he actually, it looks like he's after spraining his ankle or something yesterday. <laughs> I walked in and he was hopping on three legs and his paw was four times the size of, of what it was before. So I'm waiting to see what happened there. But um, yeah, that's my, that's my interesting life during COVID at the moment. <laughs> Well, thanks again, guys. Hey, I really appreciate it. That wraps up another episode. Thanks for tuning in with us. We'll see you next week.